Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, is our sponsor for Season 5. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable database on more than 1,400 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use iReporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Hello, and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gaillard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodik. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And we are two of your three co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% Fatigue. <laughs> Fatigue. Or 1% snow. Snow. I was going to say snow. Snow. Yeah. <laughs> Much better. Yeah. It is. Snow is in Sweden, especially snow was always the hallmark of a good winter because it brightened up the city. So I think it does that in London as well. I've been waiting for it to snow since Christmas. So this morning, I when I saw the snow, I have to confess, I just played the drifters. Did you go outside? Oh, you played the music. Played oh, okay. <laughs> like Christmas. Yeah, I did go outside. I had to drop my my little one by bike under the snow oh, to uh, to school. Yeah, but I loved it. It was really nice. That yeah. is really. Does she like snow as well? Oh, she's just like you were telling me about your cats earlier. I think she's yeah. worse than that. She's like ah. She's just, <laughs> just... <laughs> no, it is good, and it is something new to look out at in out out your window at. <laughs> um, since we're seeing the same background for our home offices, aren't we? Exactly. It's the excitement. This so is where in the is. world are you? I am uh, still in Cambridge in <laughs> the UK. Yes. But yeah, little change of environment like we just discussed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what and about I'm, you? I'm in East London, but I will be moving. Well, I'll still be in East London, but I'll be moving down the road a little bit more central. Mm. So I will have a new home office, a new lockdown four walls. I'm very excited. <laughs> Excited, and I think the reason for our uh, lovely ter- third co-host for not being here is also because he's moving. Yes, partly, partly because of that. Yes, Ex- exactly. Moving. So everyone, I think everyone has gotten a bit. I we were talking because we might do renovations, and we talked to a builder, and I was like, "Are you busy during this time?" He's like, "We haven't been busier." Mm. I think people have gotten a bit Everyone. bored. Yeah. <laughs> Let's change. And them. you know what? Because they're busy, you know what happens when people are busy with buildings stuff what they get into disputes oh yeah yes i'm getting emails from my friends and they're like oh my gosh this planning permission and this and that happened and can you have a look at this and i'm like oh my gosh yeah so be careful brian that's you get true your works done. Yeah. or start contacting construction companies on the <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah but what else is happening in the arbitration world around uh, us gosh i feel like there is a lot of stuff happening. There is, isn't there? Uh, yeah, and it, it actually links in a little bit with the 
our, our interview for this uh, episode, we're going to have Professor Chiara Giorgetti talk to us about the draft code of adjudicators. And we did talk about it a little bit in mm-hmm. a previous episode, but I, we thought it was very timely to speak it with her because she was one of the persons who drafted the code, of course. Um, and also because right now, I think it's starting, is it starting today? I'm not 100% sure, but it's definitely this week, the Uncitral um, um, working group three is going to be discussing um, this specifically, this topic of the code. So um, we thought it was very timely to bring it up. Well, that's great that they're going through with a working group virtually. Yeah, um, exactly. Although it, it's not the same as no. Uh, we ha- I had the luxury of going to the physical meetings last year. And now I feel like, oh my gosh, I just, uh, you know, it was it was great. I did realize it was great, but I didn't realize it was going to be possibly one of the last times. I know, (laughs) that's really true. Physically interact with people because as everybody knows in the world of international negotiation, international law, there's as many or if not many more conversationing happening offline Right. Online. So it was the same at the Ancestral Working Group, the coffee breaks at the side events and, you know, the bathroom breaks were all very, very important. <laughs> yeah, it's the breakout rooms. That's where the, the real drama happens. Exactly. So, so you'll be attending virtually this session or not? Well, this year, unfortunately, I will not be attending the virtual okay. sessions. They, I think they've limited the um, non-government um, people to one representative per institution. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's, it's a bit tough to 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 make it then. But, um, but I, I understand and will have confirmation from Jewel next week that he is going to be attending this week. Um, okay, so that's great. So we have so. someone on the inside. Yeah, exactly. Potentially be really report great. back. Exactly. Um, and yeah, so. And there'll be a lot of Saudi on this episode because you're going to present our second substantive topic. Yes. So the second substantive topic is on FDI screening, which we've heard a lot about um, in the European context, but it's true overall, actually. And I will talk about how this may or may not actually interact with potential investment arbitration claims. Very nice with the ECT on the verge of explosion, implosion. <laughs> Maybe there's another fountain of, of work. Exactly. Um, and then finally, we'll end uh, with a happy fun time topic, which is a practical topic close to both of our hearts, which is filings. Mm, the dreadful the moment. Dreadful <laughs> I know someone who tells their significant other to get a hotel for a week during filings. Oh my um, gosh. Because it's like, you might as well not be with me the entire week in a nice hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good call. Me. Probably a good call, actually. Yeah. I know. Okay. Well, let's start off with your interview. Perfect. I think we, if I remember correctly, we mentioned your your name uh, because we were also trying to figure out who who had drafted this. There was some initial confusion. I think that it was a state effort, but but obviously it was quickly made clear that it was it's Ixid and Ancitral. Uh, but I think you were at Ixid at the time as a scholar in yes, residence. So- Exactly, exactly. So I have been working with ICSID actually on, on ethical issues for, for quite a bit. And then because of my own research, I was, I've, I've been doing a lot of ethics um, work also. Um, but yes, so I was on sabbatical. I was on sabbatical leave at ICSID 
Um, so it was very serendipitous. I wanted to work on the code and there was working group three decided that they wanted to go ahead and, and do the code. And so I worked on, on the code mostly. And what was the was drafting really quite interesting. process like but when, with both secretariats? Did you, did you collaborate with, with the ICSID and the Institutional Secretariats? Or what, was there any direct state input? Or was it more taking into account what had been said earlier in the working group and, and the ICSID reform work? So the working groups, three and states, had already given a lot of directions to Ancetral and ICSID with all their guidelines. The process really began with a... Uh, um, suggestion by Algeria. Algeria was the one that first suggested in 2015 that there should be some work on on, on ethics and the code of mm -hmm. ethics uh, for ISDS in the reform process. And then Working Group 3 gave very substantial directions, guidelines. So you should introduce, you know, you should discuss uh, issue conflict, you should discuss double-heading, you should have remedies and, and other things. Um, but the, the drafting process was mostly within the, the, the secretariat. I because I was there, I was available, and there, and there was a lot of interest. I think I probably drafted most of the initial drafts of the, you know, the, the, the provisions, but then there was a lot of discussion, of course, lots of edits and changes. Um, and then the secretariat discussed between themselves, um, uh, you know, different people from, from the secretariat that work on the code um, had several meetings, and then it was introduced for comments uh, to the states on May, on May 1st. And now since then, obviously, there's been a lot of input from states, a large number of states and organizations, and also some, should we say, arbitration insiders, scholars and, and arbitration practitioners as well. And now it will, as we mentioned, be, be discussed again in, in Vienna. Um, so this is, I guess, a, a work in, in progress in, in a certain sense. What, what do you expect will, will happen now, before we turn to some of the, the more interesting substantive aspects of, of the code, what, what is the, the process now? Do you know? Yeah, um, yeah more or less what, what has been. So, yes, you're right that a lot of states commented, and that I thought was very interesting. So the draft was open for comments, um, and I think the comments were received on November 15th. And then they were published, so they're now available on the Exit and Ancestral website. I actually reviewed them all. And I was the, the comments are really quite good, quite detailed. A lot of stakeholders, a lot of states, uh, but also arbitration institutions and other stakeholders commented. Um, and then uh, my understanding is that the working group is going to talk about the code of one entire day of the working group meeting um, next week, um, so the entire Friday will be devoted to uh, discussing the code, and then the ICSID and Ancestral Secretariat will have like a code day, which I believe is going to be March 12, where a lot of the discussions is going to take place also. What I anticipate that there will be then most probably have another draft um, for discussion again, but it seems to me by re reading the comments that there's a lot of um, a lot of agreement on the substance of the code. And in that I thought I was, it was, I was very pleased, of course, it seems. Um, so one of the idea I think about working on the code now and suggesting the code is that the realization that the code is needed and wanted and somehow kind of a low hanging fruit. 
is something that there's a lot of a lot of agreement about, and that can in the ISDS reform process, it can really provide a a tangible piece of reform that can be both kind of the foundation of the reform, but also really provide a lot of, of guidance. And so I think there's a lot of interest in actually finalizing the code expeditiously. If you think about how international organizations normally work, to have the code, to have a draft already there, a discussion on the code already there, is really quite quite astonishing. And, and so I think it's it's quite interesting. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in actually finding something. Um, and I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm optimistic that maybe we will have something with a reasonable. From my reading of the states, there's a lot of agreement. So I think that it's possible that we may have something agreed upon uh, quite soon. I actually have a, a, a quick question before we get into the agreements and the nitty gritty of the provisions is uh, why do you think there's so much agreement about the existence of the code itself? I mean, what was the rationale behind wanting the code in the first place when there are a set of standards that exist that are not binding for sure, but the IBA guidelines are referred to, um, generally speaking. And there's been a lot of discussion about the topics that are addressed by the code. So why do you think there was such a need and, and, a, and a consensus among states to have such a instrument adopted? Right. This, this is a nice question. This is an interesting question. I think there's a lot of, um, so on one side, there's a lot of realization that something has to be done. Right. I, I have, um, there's a lot of um, understanding. So there are different ethical rules that apply. The international arbitration, ISDS specifically, has a lot of different participants, you know, with civil law background and common law background, and they all have different ethics requirement and ethics uh, understanding. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of a, a, a request of, an understanding that something that a clarification has to be given to those who participate and those who are active in the system. At the same time, I think because of the reform process, there's a lot of interest in the public about this mysterious ISDS. And this mysterious ISDS looks really strange from the outside. And that I think also has like a call for ethics. So who are these arbitrators and, and adjudicators? Um, what, what do they do? What are the rules that apply to them? And there's also a lot of um, kind of comparison also with the domestic system. There are in all the domestic systems, there are, there are very clear ethical rules that apply. And why is then there one in, um, in the arbitration system? And again, we also have the same movement in, um, in, in other international courts and tribunal. So for example, most international criminal courts have a code mm -hmm. For, for judges, the European Courts of Human Rights. So most international courts and tribunals, the ICJ, a little kind of less binding, but still. Right? So you have provisions and ethical rules in all international courts and tribunals, um, public interest, but also interest like a systemic interest from, the, from insiders. So a lot of kind of serendipity there, a lot of understanding that something has to be done. And I think one important issue is that yes, we have the ABA rules, but those are soft law. And I think we need something, and I, I really believe that we really need something that is binding on all mm. the parties, that is not only a suggestion of what you should do, but it's mandatory. This is what you have to do. Turning so to there's the agreement. Oh, sorry. No, no. <laughs> That's a problem. I was just going to say there's on this binding um, part, and sorry, Joel, I'm, I'm going to let you speak after that, but is there consensus, would you say, agreement between the states as, as to the fact that it should be binding? 
I think this is what the parties, what, what, what states have asked. Um, I see some comments that said, well, we should refer more to the IBA. Some states have said, you know, we have the IBA. And I think it's fine. It's completely fine. We do have the IBA. Um, but the IBA has, I think there's some frustration on using the IBA because sometimes you have, you know, most of the conflicts, for example, are in the orange list. And so it's, it's, it's not red, it's not green, but it's very often it's the orange. And so I think a clarification that's kind of mandatory. So the IBA is, is very helpful, but I think um, we need more like clearer and more mandatory. And um, I think to a certain extent there is an agreement that this should be mandatory. I see some resistance, but I think the resistance is mostly from other stakeholders, not states. I was trying to jump into the... To, to the nitty gritty and to the, to the substance of, of the code. And there are a few articles where, where in, in the first draft that is now being discussed that there was bracketed language, yep. uh, which we mm -hmm. now hopefully will see some more input on. And, and, and some of, some of the, those things were also among the things that were, were commented upon by the various stakeholders who submitted comments. Mm -hmm. And maybe turn to one that I know Sadia has a special interest in as well, which is maybe not unique to investment arbitration, but maybe... Uh, much more uh, re relevant in investment arbitration than in other spheres of international adjudication. And that is the, the double heading provision or mm -hmm. the multiple roles provision, as I think it's called in the, in the code, which of yeah. course doesn't use the informal double heading, uh, which is article six. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but if, if I remember correctly from, from when we did the segment on the, on, on the substance, it is not clear in, in article six as it currently stands, whether, Double heading should be disclosed or prohibited. Is that a fair characterization of sort of where the dividing line is uh, as of now? Yeah. Yes. So I see in terms of the the, the code, I, I mentioned before, there seems to be a lot of um, common understanding about the main principles, you know, the main principles of disclosure and many others. But there are some issues that are that they are a little sticky, they are more difficult. And I think one of them is the double heading and, and the multiple role uh, roles, how it is, you know, the multiple roles idea. And I think even the fact that, it, that the article is titled limit on multiple roles might be interesting. And so article six, actually, yes. So you have a choice, the bracketed test says you can either be required to uh, disclose or you have to um, or, or there is a prohibition, and here this the 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 states kind of have to negotiate, and and there are many kind of negotiations there because it's not only the real the, the very kind of essential question whether is it is it a disclosure issue or it is a prohibition issue, but also the extent of what what is it covered in multiple roles? Is it counsel? Is it uh, you know the sitting as an expert, judges, agent? Um, is there a limit, right? What is the timing of the disclosure, t uh, a number of years? Um, but also what kind of um, cases would be, would be part of it, right? So would, be, would, would it would initiate a, a double heading? So is it only for cases that involve the same parties? Is it cases that had, that are decided under the same treaties or is it that they apply the same institutional rules? So there are a lot of choices under Article 6. And actually when I look at the, um, the comments on the states here, there, there is quite a bit of discrepancies. There are, there are a lot of different 
um, ideas on on how to regulate it. Some are said, so we should only we should disclose. Most say with they should refrain completely from acting, but others. So there's a lot of there, there are many different views, um, and I think this will be one of the topic that will provide that will uh, elicit a lot of discussions. We'll have a lot of discussions by uh, by parties themselves, but by, by, by the states. On this, I have a question. Is there, has there been a discussion or will there be a discussion on data um, of how many actual arbitrators today are double-heading or are considered to be double-heading um, in accordance to the, the principles that are in the draft code? As far as I know, there hasn't been, there haven't been discussions on data per se, but and this is one of the issues. It's we don't know because we don't know what double hatting really is. There are not that many. The, the, the data is not easy to find. Um, there is an idea that we know what double hatting is, but there's really so how do we do it? How do we find out? There have been some publications on on data that provides data, and they say that actually, really, um, double hatting is prevalent. A lot of people double hat. Uh, at least as counsel and uh, and arbitrators, as this a counsel and kind of adjudicators, um, some adjudicators, some arbitrators have said, no, I, I will not do it under the same treaty or under the same rules. But it seems that it's quite prevalent. There have been some work of the academic forum on on data and on double hatting, um, but I don't think there's been any kind of official uh, official data on that. And of course, there are a lot of policy implications about uh, double headings too, and, and how we want to regulate it, and, and you know, diversity and, and entry to a new entry. So there are a lot of different interesting issues there. That's a very good one, actually. I'd be interested in hearing more about that because I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, if you're going to prohibit double heading, how are you going to increase diversity?" Is that um, what do you think about that argument? Yeah, I, I don't know. It seems to me that now there's kind of there's a narrative that has become that, that is, is as you said. So there's a narrative that has become uh, prevalent that if you prohibit double hatting, um, then you prohibit also, or it makes it very difficult for new entry to um, um, to, to become established or to be to be uh, to be nominated. So there's a prohibition of double hatting would also hurt. Diversity, but it seems to me a little bit of a false dichotomy because if you, it is it, actually also kind of kind of counterintuitive because if you, if there is a prohibition on double heading, then the result of that would be more more spots. You have less people, less of the known individuals to fill to fill these spots, and so you will have more spots um, to be to be filled. So you will have new. There will be actually a more possibilities for a new and diverse group to take up these these positions and these appointments. Um, I think one of the um, challenges, so one of the comments about uh, double heading and diversity, is that if you have one case, um, so you kind of you're a new entrant, you have one case, then you cannot um, you cannot uh, then um, stop being counsel at the same time because you need to be continue your work as counsel while you establish your arbitration practice. Um, now, I don't. So, I think you have policy choices there. You can protect new entries in different ways without 
touching this prohibition or, or regulating double-heading. So you can do, for example, you can, you can establish other protection. For example, you can say, so there is a, there is a, a, a transition. You can say, okay, there's a transition for two years. Um, a new entry, a new arbitrator can still sit or can still be a council um, while she or he establishes a new practice. And I think that's fine because you have different policy choices and I think they are legitimate. At the same time, there are policy reasons to prohibit double-hatting completely, at least in for, for the same treaty or, or for the same parties, uh, mostly. So I think it doesn't as such. I know that there's this narrative that if you prohibit double-hatting, then you stop new entry, but I really think that this is kind of a bit of a, of, of a, of a false dichotomy, a false narrative. I think if you prohibit uh, double-heading completely, you can still protect new entry and give them a chance. And at the same time, you will have more, more, more possibility of being appointed just because you will have more kind of arbitration spots if you cannot appoint always the same people. One related but, but separate provision in the draft code is Article 5 about disclosure, which, which I think mm -hmm. received some blowback from some of the, the arbitration insiders that commented, maybe most notably Brigitte Stern, who was a bit critical mm -hmm. of the, the proposed wide obligation uh, as a presumptive arbitrator or, or adjudicator to, to disclose various activities. And I, I think it, it, it's an ambitious provision as it stands, in, including even lectures and other public th things you've said. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what is your thinking of this? We talked about it on the podcast as well, that it would be hard for most yeah. le legal practitioners to, to give that kind of comprehensive uh, account of everything you've done involving investment arbitration. So I'm not sure. I think this is quite interesting, actually. And I see, of course, I, I read Bridget Stern's uh, comments and other, um, and other arbitrators have been quite critical. But I think, so when you look at, at the issue of confidentiality, which, as you said, is regulated in, um, in Article 5 and, and the disclosure obligations are different ways to look at it. They're, they're kind of different levels of analysis. On one side, you see kind of the big picture. Um, I think there is a um, overall overarching um, kind of approval of the regulatory method of enhancing transparency and, um, and disclosure. Uh, so the, I see, I've seen in the comments really by everybody that the idea that a way to regulate um, ethics uh, based on disclosure and kind of the codification effort based on enhanced disclosure is something that's, that's, up, that, that's fine, that's appreciated and everybody kind of agrees, uh, agrees upon. So there is approval of the kind of the overarching regulation. Um, and some of the base, basic principles, I right, saw so that um, disclosure has to be continuous and, and you have to try kind of try your best um, uh, and it is the responsibility of the arbitrators also to know. And then there is the issue of the extent of the disclosure. And here the extent of the disclosure um, covers, you know, what kind of parties, for how long, uh, um, and, you know, what kind of cases. And again, if you look at states' comments, there is a fair amount of agreement on that too. So, for example, if you look at the kind of this, the time or the extent of the disclosure, most states, and I'm looking here, you know, Chile, Canada, Colombia, the EU, the US, all said that the five years period is fine. 
most states are also are also in agreement with the kind of the parties, especially making sure that those who have a financial interest are um, are included in the disclosure. And also the a lot of Article Five, especially the, the, the Article Five Two, really mirrors the new the ICSID declaration, the one that's being part in the in the in the new amendment process, right? So it's nothing completely new. Um, there are, however, as you said, Joel, some disagreements on, I think, two specific issues. One is issue conflict and what it means to have issue conflict. So Article 5 here, D, 2D, a list of all public disclosure that requires a disclosure of a list of all publications by the adjudicator or candidate and the relevant public speeches. So I think there have been some discussion um, about that. And also the one that comes right before in, in the sense of the what kind of cases. Um, but when you think about the comments that we've received, if you take out issue conflict, there's a lot of agreement about the other, all the other kind of disclosures also between states. And maybe what you see is a little bit of um, discrepancy between what states want and maybe sometimes what arbitrators want. And here, I think this is, a, this is it's, it's, important, it's important to say that this is a state-led process and the states want to ensure a lot of disclosure, a lot of information, because then the idea is that if you know a lot, the parties then can make a decision about whether they want to challenge or they want to keep the arbitrators if they're fine with that or they want to know more or what is happening. So this is the state-led process. And I think that there's a lot of agreement between states and maybe some um, arbitrators are need to, to see also what the states are, are, are requesting and what they, they want. Uh, so I think there's a lot, if you look at the comments from states, it seems to me there's a lot of agreement about disclosure and the extent of confidentiality. Then there are some comments if you look at kind of the practicalities of it, right? So if you're looking kind of at the levels of analysis, big picture, everybody's on board. The extent of disclosure, a lot of agreement, but a lot of fine, fine tuning too. So you have to look especially on, on financial interest. Um, and the idea of issue conflict, which some delegations have said, maybe we want to take it out from Article 5 and have a specific article on that. And I think that would be actually a very good idea just to look at, at issue conflict and what it is and how to regulate it. Um, and then I think there's, a, there, there's some kind of a, a more discussions to be had on what kind of cases, all ISDS cases, all other international arbitrations cases, and, and what kind of, 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 uh, uh, of cases needs to be disclosed. But I think kind of the next level is the practicality of it. And some arbitrators have said, well, it is impractical, it is difficult, to, um, to provide the, uh, the information. And I understand that, but I think there are ways to go about it that are quite simple. So for example, you can have a kind of a live CV, right? You can have a kind of a depository where arbitrators have a CV that's there. And then when they have a new case, when they have a new uh, article or they have something that needs to be disclosed, it just goes there. Right? So I think there are creative solutions that are not very difficult, especially now in a time where you have so much electronic and so many you know, uh, things that are online. I think having a live CV or some, some, some way to just to be a depository, it would be quite easy. And a depository maybe where everybody can 
can have can have access. Um, so I don't think this is an insurmountable insurmountable problems. That's a great great point. If, if I may. <laughs> If I may, Joel and uh, and Kara, I just have one because you both are academics and I'm not. Um, I just wanted to point out one thing that yes, you talk about the state perspective, and of course, it's really important because it's a state-led um, view. But I think they're underestimating the level of what scholarly articles and academia's contribution is to the investment arbitration world. Um, if on the one hand we want to limit double heading, then that means essentially most of the arbitrators are going to be. Um, you know, academics, at least non-practitioners. Um, and on the other hand, you know, we're telling these academics, oh, you can't publish or publish, be careful about what you publish and what you talk about, because it may be uh, used against you for appointment. So it's just making it very difficult for people yeah. to yeah. get appointed, you know? Uh, I mean, that's just a, a thought that I had from a uh, academic perspective, not being an this is this is wonderful. So I'm, I'm I'm delighted that you're saying that the academic point of view is important. So it's a, it's really uh, it's really nice. Um, thank you, um, as an academic. But um, and I think you raise a very important issue. I really don't think that what we want is a chilling effect on publications and on and on freedom and academic freedom. And what we've seen in on issue conflict on the cases that is very very limited. We don't want to say that uh, academics don't cannot publish. Um, I think the idea is more um, to make it available with the idea that uh, the kind of the, the uh, sitting as an arbitrator and writing something are different. And I think what we really want is trying to understand what is this issue conflict. We talk a lot about issue conflict, but it's not really clear when there really is an issue conflict. Issue conflict should be, I think, very limited, very specific on cases or, or issues that have been already decided or where there is a very, um, where, where the person has not, will not change his or her mind. There have been so much evidence that's been collected that they will not change their mind. Um, but I, I think you raised a great point about um, we, we, that we don't want a, a chilling effect at all. What we need to do is make clear um, that if we want a list of publications or, or public speeches, um, it is more for the knowledge and make sure that there is this academic freedom and this independence and impartiality, which we're looking for from, um, uh, from an adjudicator. I have one final question, and it, it is perhaps telling that it is the final question, because it, it tends to be, and it is in the draft as well. And it is the, the provision on enforcement, which I think was... Mm -hmm probably on purpose, uh, left a bit open-ended in, in, the, in the first draft. And that is, of course, in, man, in many ways, uh, the million-dollar question. How will this code yeah. be, be enforced ultimately? How do we ensure that it is complied with? And I realize you're not in, in the best position to comment because you, you did leave it open, and it is presumably something that states will have to talk about as well. But maybe you have thoughts nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. I have some actually some ideas. And I think you're right in saying there's a little bit open-ended. Working Group 3 has said, you know, you should look into um, remedies and kind of what, what kind of different sanctions. Um, and Article 12 says, okay, so we have either the kind of obvious but important point that adjudicators and candidates have an obligation to comply with the applicable provision of the code. This is paragraph one or article 12. 
or you kind of have the more like the nuclear option, right? The disqualification, right? The challenges, but there's kind of nothing in between. That's really hard. You either have the challenges or even worse, maybe the ISIS scenario, or you have, well, you have to comply because it's an obligation that is, that is upon you. And I think there again, you have to be a little creative Working Group 3 has said in the guidelines as you have to look at kind of monetary or reputational sanctions. But I think it's really hard for the system, how it is now, to either, to both have monetary or reputational sanctions. Because how can arbitral institutions or secretariats actually issue monetary sanctions? So again, I think you have to look a little bit more of a creative solutions. And this is, uh, I, I should have said it before, this is, I'm not talking, of course, on behalf of either ICSID or ANSITO, this is just me uh, as, as an academic, as, a, as, a, as a, somebody who has been working on this. And I think, again, we want to look at some more creative ways. And I think it is, this will be, it's important to look at what the code will look like to know how to enforce it. And this is why I think it has been left open. How does it look like what, how is it going to be implemented, for example? There have been many ideas. Is it going to be like kind of a Mauritius convention kind of uh, implementation where you have many different ways? It can be added as an annex. It can be, um, you know, it can be um, implemented uh, uh, for, for new cases or the parties can decide to do it or um, more simply, maybe can just be included in the declaration for that arbitrator signs, and that would be very easy. But so there, there must be, in terms of enforcement, you also have to look at how the, the code will be, uh, will be implemented. But in, in terms of enforcement, I do have some kind of thoughts that will look maybe more like of a creative way to enforce. So, for example, um, the World Bank has something called a sanction system where they have an office for, so for suspension and debarment. And I think that might provide some interesting examples on a way to enforce the code itself. I think what is important, so what is important, I think, is that the code is the same for all ISDS processes, so that the code that is applied at, at ICSID is the same that is applied as an ancestral and in other um, ISDS cases. Um, and what the World Bank uh, sanction system does, for example, is to be able to look at um, cases throughout different institutions. So my idea, and so this is, I don't know if it's very clear, but it's, my idea is what we should do is kind of to create a office that is charged with collecting information, ensuring that the information are correct, it may be, for example, publish lists that are um, that are kind of data driven. So, for example, if there are, if you're thinking about reputational um, reputational sanctions, for example, what is it? If an arbitrator is always late, it is difficult to know if they're late or not. But if there is a procedural order, procedural order it says. Well, you have to provide your whatever, you know, they, they agree that they have to do it within six months, within a year, and they're late. Maybe this kind of obvious data, kind of very objective data can be collected and can then be um, publicized. Or there have been challenges and the challenges have been sustained. There have been 
um, other kind of data that can be collected and that can be distributed to the parties that can be open to the parties so that they can that they can kind of gouge uh, the or, or understand what the behavior or what the um, how, 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 how arbitrators uh, behave. I think it's important to have kind of an independent office, um, an office that has able to collect and then uh, and collect data that are as objective as possible. I think having this idea of, you know, asking parties, so what do you think? I, I don't think it's very objective. I think we want to say something uh, uh, kind of, we want, we, there, there, are, there is data that, that are the, that are available and I think will be helpful to parties to have. How many cases arbitrators have? Um, how long have they taken to decide? Um, have they been challenged? Uh, you know, many things that I think can be, I don't know if it's too naive. Sadia, what do you think? I don't know. As a practitioner. As a practitioner, if you're going to look at data of how many arbitrators have not given the awarding time, you probably will have a close to 80 to 90%. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have that data I in know. front of me. I know, yeah. but, I've, but I've seen a lot of extension of timelines um, for rendering the award. Almost all of the cases I've been involved in um, had that, except emergency cases. Yeah, I was in practice for a long time too, and I completely agree. But maybe there are some, some that are more... They're kind of worse than others. If you're a month late, that's fine. But if you're a year late, that's not really fine. You know, the parties are paying. So there are kind of degrees on that too. And I think the ICC also has some more creative issues. So I think we have to, we have to look at, at things kind of more creatively. I think what is important is if we have a code that is mm-hmm. um, composed, mm-hmm. that is mandatory, and this is accepted throughout like many different institutions, then you have a base in which you can you can be more creative and you can try to find new solutions for a problem um, and new solutions that really don't exist at the moment. They, they, and they cannot exist because every institution has its, have, have their own challenges procedures, have their own appointment procedures. And so you have to create like a system that works with what we have, but is independent and also provide, of course, a, a fair system for, for all the arbitrators. And the parties. It, it sounds like you're talking about one of the few words that the Swedish language mm-hmm. has managed to yeah. to uh, export into the legal vocabulary, an ombudsman, oh. basically. Mm, exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to say ombudsman because I wasn't sure how you will say it in Swedish, but absolutely. <laughs> That's a kind of an ombudsman office, yes. <laughs> That's a very interesting idea. I think we have to wrap up here and, and thank you so much, Kiara, for jumping on this call with us. It's been interesting to talk to someone who, who knows about the draft code and it's not just us speculating, but someone who's ac- actually actively involved (laughs) thank you very much it's been really a pleasure and an honor so thank you i really enjoyed it thank you thanks thank you so much kaya it was wonderful thank you Screening. What does it mean for investors and could it be the basis for future investment arbitration proceedings? That's kind of how we frame the question of this uh, topic today. And before I go into this, if you may, Brian, I would just like to get some data out, which doesn't look directly connected, but it rang a bell to me when I saw this. So UNTAD has, um, as everybody knows, a global investment trends monitor. And for 2021, listen to this, Brian, global FDI in 2020 fell by 42%. Wow. 42% drop. 
And it concentrated, the drop was concentrated in developed countries where FDI flows fell by 69%. Can you imagine that? Yes, that's huge. When I saw that, I was like, what? And uh, FDI to developing economies declined only by 12%. Interesting. It is Wait, really what was interesting. The, what was the year span for that? Was that just 2020? Wow. 2020. I mean, you know, of course, it's explainable by yeah. a lot of other reasons, but it doesn't look like 2021 would be such a, a such a, you know, better year. To yeah. be honest, no, definitely. Um, why am I talking about this in this context? Well, because you're seeing that FDI is, you know, fell sharply last year. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have these measures of FDI screening which um, the debate around those started. Now, I'm just going to start with the EU um, as an illustration. Mm -hmm. Debates surrounding screening um, started in February 2017, so a couple of years ago now. Um, And it was initiated from the French, the German, and the Italian ministers for the economy, which requested an action at the EU level. Um, And then on 13 September 2017, the president of the European Commission spoke before the European Parliament and confirmed that the EU would remain open to FDI, but should devise vigorous and effective policies to ensure a level playing field with the rest of the world. So fast forward, fast forward, um, October 2020, and we have the EU Foreign Direct Investment Screening Regulation, which became applicable. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to speak a little bit more about it in, in a second. Um, What's interesting to note is that, of course, Europe is not the only one with the screening mechanism. There's also the UK. So the UK is actually right now, this very week, discussing the uh, national, what they call the National Security and Investment Bill, which is in essence also FDI screening process specific to the UK because parentheses for those who haven't been following the uk is not part of the european (laughs) union anymore (laughs) what what when did that happen (sighs) so of course there's they have their specific now you know um legislation which mirrors essentially the european screening process and there's one of course in the us and in japan as well but i'm not going to go into too much detail in those what i'm going to do is start by explaining what the regulation is in the european in the European Union, just to give an example of what it is. So as I mentioned, the regulation was introduced um, and um, recently, and it was the first EU-wide foreign investment screening cooperation mechanism, and it allowed the European Commission and the member states to comment on foreign investments taking place in other member states. Mm-hmm. Big deal. So it complements, in essence, the European Commission's existing powers to review foreign investments under EU merger control rules and or under sector-specific legislation, such as the third energy package, which was already applicable to foreign investment in the EU energy infrastructure. So one thing that's interesting to note is that while the regulation does not allow the European Commission to block investments or issue binding opinions to the member states, and it does not really harmonize FDI screening across the EU, the new rules are widely expected to have a significant impact on foreign investment going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the regulation does not affect the member state discretion, like I just mentioned, as to whether they may maintain their existing screening mechanism, adopt new ones, or remain without such national mechanism. But it establishes some key requirements for national screening mechanisms, such as transparency of rules, non-discrimination among foreign investors, confidentiality of information exchange, and the possibility of recourse against uh, screening decisions. Um, 
Now, so this can be because the UK legislation has within its name national security, but the comments from these member states and and the EU can be more uh, can be anything, right? Yes. Yeah, so they they've defined um, they they list like a number of factors and which you you know the of course the screening mechanism concerns. So mm-hmm. of course it was meant to be uh, security and trust and public policy and all of that. So the the sectors concerned there's critical infrastructures, mm-hmm. critical technology, uh, the supply of critical inputs such as energy or raw materials. Uh, access to sensitive information on the ability to control information, freedom and pluralism of the media. Uh, there's been talk about, you know, intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, it's just extremely, extremely vague and um, very large, I would say, to be honest. So even if it's constrained to, sex, you know, national security interests, you can see that energy, for example, um, mm-hmm. is, is a very large sector yeah definitely uh, of control now with respect to the uk because you just mentioned the uk um again it was in november 2020 actually that the uk proposed a national security investment bill and if passed the bill would introduce for the first time a distinct mechanism and standalone powers for review of fdi in the uk um now there was an existing again there was an existing mechanism a public interest merger control regime that was um that existed but they've made the the conditions for that significantly stricter now um and it the proposed review mechanism would apply to investors from any country with no minimum target turnover or market share thresholds to be made mm-hmm. um and it would enable the uk secretary of state to intervene in those transactions um now, what here, there are 17 distinct industry sectors that are being suggested as okay. sensitive, uh, civil nuclear, communications, data infrastructure, defense, energy, transport, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, I can go on and go on, but there's, you know, military, of course, satellite and space technology, computing hardware. Mm. Um, there's more even more discussion now to extend the list to health and pharmaceuticals for obvious reasons yeah uh, since the covid uh, outbreak and that's actually also the case in the japani um japan Jap- did i say japani yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like that though. japani japani <laughs> japani uh japanese sorry the japanese screening uh, mechanism which is the foreign exchange and foreign trade act um, where they have expended to include manufacturing industries for pharma and highly controlled medical devices. So you can get a sense of this protectionism, right? Uh, right. That is not only the EU, but, you know, arranging a, a high protectionism for this, what they call to protect national security interest, right. which is understandable, of course. Um, to a certain extent, but what does it mean for investor protections? I mean, does that mean that if you have these protections, um, that investors have potential claims because they would be they won't be able to make a certain merger that or a certain investment in a country because um, of these measures? So. I'm not the only one who has thought about this, actually. <laughs> the first time I thought about this, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe nobody has thought about it. But, of course, people have talked about it and thought about it. Not a lot. We don't hear this discussion a lot. Um, but people have thought about it. And I've seen this very interesting blog post, actually, on Kluwer, uh, where 
essentially the analysis is is that FDI screening affects potential investments, right? Mm-hmm. So you're blocked to make an investment from the outset. Right. Um, now, I didn't go in too much detail into the provisions, uh, but one thing, Brian, that I didn't mention is it also allows for retroactive application in certain, uh, in, in certain, um, in certain conditions. So, for example... I think it's the UK one which allows this, or at least it's being currently discussed, that you could, um, for an investment that was, for example, authorized or that didn't require a preliminary notification because it didn't fall into the original categories, five five years later, you could still, you know, review those and, um, you know, say that, you know, that they won't be allowed anymore. So then they would have to decommission whatever they had already installed. Exactly. And and under the EU regulation, I believe that is also the case that you could do that retroactive, um, retroactive screening. Um, So it's a, it's a big deal. (laughs) It's a big deal. But if we, if we concentrate just on the potential investment part, Mm -hmm. the the argument would be of, you know, would a tribunal would have jurisdiction rationate temporaries, right? Is, is whether or not um, you would have jurisdiction on a potential investment and also on the merits. Is your treaty protecting uh, the establishment phased or, you know, the pre-establishment phased or the post-establishment phase? So, again, of course, it depends on every treaty's wording, but you could see that there are different models. So the first model, let's call it the first model, which was adapted, you know, from early uh, treaties, mostly in the 70s, is to not regulate the pre-establishment phase of investments at all. Mm -hmm. So these treaties do not encompass a right of establishment in the host state, but rather rather merely require the latter to abide by the investment protection standards and guarantee in relation to those foreign investments that has unilaterally decided to admit. So one example of those uh, BITs, for example, the 72 Congo-France BIT. Um, So if under those BITs, theoretically speaking, what it would mean is that if a host state adopts a discriminatory or abusive measure in the pre-establishment phase, Mm -hmm. the foreign investor will not be normally entitled to trigger the investment treaty arbitration clause in respect of such measures. Um, That's like going to, you know, the language of the treaties where it says investments made by investors that... um, basically says that these pre-establishment phase would be excluded from the exactly. scope of the BAT. Exactly, exactly. But in fact, there's, yeah, there, there was like the old generation of yeah. treaties. Right. Um, now, there's the second model, which is where admission and establishment phase is not covered, but there's an obligation to encourage investments. Mm. So, for example, um, so, yes, so sorry. So, the clauses requiring state parties on the one hand to reciprocally promote investments from the other state party, and on the other, providing that such investments admission be regulated by domestic law. You've seen, mm-hmm. I'm sure, a lot of these treaties. Um, most EU member states, and in fact, most recently, Japan, follow this approach. So, for example, just to give you an example, if you look at the 2008 German model BIT, which I'm sure will be ancient at some point because there will no longer be BITs at some point. Right. <laughs> Anyways, it's still, it's still applicable this one. Each contracting state shall in its territory promote as far as possible investments by investors of the other contracting state and admit such investments in accordance with its legislation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so theoretically, you could argue that an FDI screening mechanism, which is arbitrary, would be seen as not encouraging investment from another contracting state, you know? Yeah. Um, and this isn't the preamble. This is a specific article of the... That That's actually a specific article, yeah. Right. So this is a model BIT, but you can find the same one in the Japan-Jordan BIT as well, uh, which is very similarly worded. So they don't impose any treaty obligation as to the admission of the investment, but rather qualify as a best effort commitment undertaken by host states to promote foreign investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so any protectionist measures such as FDI screening, for example, uh, person to their domestic regulations prior to the establishment of an investment uh, will not necessarily amount to a violation of the IAA, uh, so the investment agreement, but and it would possibly rule out the possibility for the investor to resort to investment treaty arbitration in such cases. But, you know, it, again, it depends on how, how it's, it's, it's drafted. Right. Um, now, the last model is where you expressly admit um, that the establishment phase is covered. And there are treaties that that expressly say that. So the US and Canada, and most recently the UK and the EU mm. itself have promoted yet another model, which is um, which explicitly bestowing upon foreign investors the right to have their investment admitted into the host state. So such right of establishment is usually provided under the national treatment standard of protections. Um, and in fact, you know, and this is a parenthesis also applicable for the earlier treaties that MFN clauses in there also usually cover the admission establishment phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, it, that's how the US model BIT is framed. This is how the model BIT, the Canadian model BIT is framed. And I'm going to refer to um, article Servant 2.3 of the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which was concluded in December last year. Um, each party shall accord to investors of the other party and to covered enterprises treatment no less favorable than that it accords in like situation to its own investors and to their enterprises with respect to their establishment and operation in its territory. Mm-hmm. You see? So you could use that theoretically. Um, to cover, um, I mean, I'm saying theoretically because it hasn't been done, but right. you could use it to cover the um, the establishment phase. That's a little disturbing, no? Don't you think? Yeah, it's well, it's also interesting that it's connected to the nationality under these MFN provisions because you're thinking of these national security interests and you will typically not have, I mean, you may have a state or state-owned entity investing into an, into another country, but if you have a company that is investing into another company. And then you're saying that based on their nationality, you have national security interests. Um, You're gonna get into some state to state issues that are invoked by virtue of this investor's activities. So Mm -hmm. I think it presents a few few issues when we, and I'm sure you're gonna discuss this about the national security, you know, the invocation of the national security interests. Yeah, exactly. So that was gonna be actually the point I was getting to is of course the defense for states would be this is in my national security interest. So, which know, is such a red button, isn't it? It Just is like, exactly. Don't, can't touch this. Don't talk about exactly. it. Exactly. You can't touch this. It comes again. Like <laughs> this is my national security interest. Like, what are you saying? Of course I can regulate. Of course I can regulate this. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So in fact, it's not that easy okay. because in case the applicable treaty expressly provides for a right of establishment, 
foreign investors being denied admission of the investment pursuant to domestic FDI screening regulations may trigger, of course, like we mentioned, the arbitration clause. But the host state, when it raises the defense of security exception, um, when we look at treaties, they fall under what are called non-precluded measures, so NPM provisions, uh, which limit the applicability of treaty investment protections in cases of measures uh, detrimental to the foreign investors, ju justified by what I just mentioned, essential national security interests. Mm -hmm. But the, the interesting thing is you have, of course, it depends on the wording, and the wording is they're either self-judging clauses or non-self-judging clauses. So self-judging clauses gives the host state power to unilaterally decide whether national security interest exists. Right. Such assessment should be carried out based on the wording of the treaty, of course. Self-judging clauses typically read, and I quote, it considers necessary. So if a state considers it necessary, see, you, you normally shouldn't have the tribunal's discretion to see, wait, what does the state consider necessary, right? The state right. is going to say, well, I consider it necessary. So that's it. End of debate. Right. While non-self-judging clauses will merely indicate that measures must be necessary. You see? Oh, I see. It's a bit mm -hmm. different. So you have examples of non-self-judging clauses. I can give you references with our quoting, like Article 11 of the 1994 US-Argentina BIT, Article 24 of the 2020 Brazil, Brazil Indian BIT, um, has actually a self-judging clause in there. So um, it says, nothing in this treaty shall be construed to require a party to furnish any information, the disclosure of which it considers contrary to its essentially security interest. Well, this is it, isn't it? If you're going to prove your, it's it's so difficult in practice. If you're going to prove your national security interest, you're going to have to furnish evidence or some sort of documentation that shows that you've made some sort of assessment on the national security interest, right, right. which alone would be confidential and, uh, you know, an abridgment of national security. Exactly. If, that's why they, they have included this kind of provision. But what's interesting that is that even in self-judging clauses, so there's been some commentary on this, um, and in, in particular, there's been a WTO panel in the Russia measures concerning traffic in transit in April 2019, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. This case relates to multiple restrictions on traffic in transit from Ukraine through Russia to third countries. And in particular, Russia banned all international cargo transit from the territory of Ukraine that is destined primarily for Kazakhstan and the Kyrgyz Republic. <laughs> Uh, Russia raised objections to the panel's jurisdiction um, by claiming that the Article uh, 21 of the GATT uh, included a self-judging clause, okay, which mm -hmm. it's, and the, the panel considered, because I'm not going to read the, the clause out, that it wasn't a totally self-judging as was asserted by Russia, even though, I mean, I can read the relevant provision. It says nothing in this agreement shall be construed. Again, it said to prevent any contracting party from taking any action which it considers necessary for the protection of its essential security interest. Mm -hmm. So honestly, I mean, I know this is WTO, but it's still very relevant for us because it's the same language. Yeah. Um, so the panel considered it wasn't totally self-judging. And in, in any event, um, it said that, um, the, so the discretion of a member state to designate particular concerns as essential security interests is limited by its obligation to interpret and apply the article of the GATT in good mm. faith. Of so course. the good faith stuff came in to say, hm, 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 
you can't just say, can't touch this, even right. if it's a, a self-judging <laughs> clause, right? So this is, you always get the good faith, you know, argument. As when like you can't the find last, <laughs> Exactly, like the last result, like, no, 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 this is improper, you can't do that. Right. Um, and this has actually been also um, invoked in a NAFTA case um, where there was, it was the statement of administrative action to the 1993 US NAFTA Implementation Act, which interpreted the MPA clause of the NAFTA uh, to be self-judging in nature, although each government would expect the provisions to be applied by the other in good faith. So there's references to good faith specifically there. Hmm. So, um, I'm going to stop there because I realize I've taken a lot of the time of our listeners, but it's really interesting debate. I think we are going to see uh, a number of at least disputes arising out of the screening mechanism because the scope is extremely wide. Yeah. Um, as far as I understand for the EU regulations, of course, the um, target was to limit foreign investment originally from China. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting because right now we have a conversation as to replace the 20 something, I think it's 25 or 27 BITs existing between China and the European uh, Union member states right. with a um, trade deal between China and the EU, which does not enable uh, investor state protection, uh, dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. It's a state to state thing. So maybe it's a response to these measures that they're going to take. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, this is exactly it. I mean, you have these like fears of cyber espionage coming from different countries, specifically China, and with the, you know, the advancements in technology allowing for like such massive data production and, and data transfers to be more susceptible to these types of issues. Um, you're going to have a lot of states invoking these um, or, you know, these pro not protections, these exemptions or NPMs as you call them to say that, you know, wait a second, we should be able to regulate based off this. Yeah. But if you're dealing with, again, if you're dealing with a specific investor from a country, if it's if it's a business that is not owned by the, the entity or with no connection to the government, um, it's going to be interesting how that would how that would play out. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a very good point. And also in, in, like I mentioned before, in the health industry now, in the pharmaceuticals yeah. industry and with the vaccines. Yes. They are certainly going to introduce um those those measures i mean you know in france for example and i don't know to what extent that is true but i have read that when um you know when covid happened etc last year they realized that even like um the production of a paracetamol was essentially coming from china really <laughs> yeah like it was coming from china essentially so it's it's kind of interesting i think they're just kind of now realizing that they have to Yes. Be careful. <laughs> well, and this goes to your retroactivity point as well, to the extent that the investment is already taking place or has already happened. How are you going to, you know, reverse all of these, you know, investments and all of these trade deals that are already happening? Um, I, and then you're going to have, you know, retroactivity is a constitutional issue, whether a state can um, en enact a legislation that has retroactive effect. And then you may have some sort of side uh, domestic court proceedings based on the constitutionality of such of such decisions. Yeah, very um, good point. Very good be, point. It'll be interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, this is ripe, as you say in the beginning, this is ripe for for disputes, if allowed under the under the treaties. Yeah, if allowed. And that's why I think also they're, <laughs> you know, renegotiating all these treaties and, mm -hmm. and, you know, 
changing the, the text to it. But let's see what's going to happen. Let's see. Great, great segment. Well, it is time for us to crack a beer in the happy fun time topic, and we will need it after filing. <laughs> <laughs> It is the end of the segment and the end of the episode. And now we have to talk about something which I could spend hours and days talking about, which is filings, uh, filings of written submissions in international arbitration. Um, as we said before, it is a grueling task. And often you feel just like moving houses that when you get to the final moment, you are completely unprepared is what you had thought. <laughs> and you're now mad dashing to the finish line with your team pulling late nights, if not all nights, um, at the office. You have just had a filing. So this is, you know, yes. perfect, <laughs> right in your wheelhouse. Um, but I think we can, you know, not only talk about the practicalities of it, but also issues that arise um, in filings to make them all the more complex than they actually need to be. Um, when you are filing, do you have um, a typical structure that you have with your team leading up to a filing? Um, like the week before or two weeks before, are there certain things that you have in place, like, you know, block out your schedules? Yeah. This is who needs to be here. Do you have anything in place? Like, does your firm have a, a policy on filing? So the firm does not have a policy on filing. I've worked in different firms and no, the, all the, the three firms I was at did not have a policy per se of filing. Right. It really depends on the partner you're working with on the file or your team. Um, but as you practice makes perfect. Yes. <laughs> Every time I'm like, never again, we're not going to do this. So we oh. have like a, a, a meeting post filing where we're like, okay, what went wrong? Oh, can we smart. get better? Yeah. So I, I do that regularly. And one thing which seems so mundane, so mundane, but um, is that we do establish a planning, like a, a, a planning, not a planning is the French word. A retro planning is like a, um, a calendar, you know, um, yeah. we, we, we decide, okay, not just a week before, because of course the week before is like, you know, finalizing in an ideal world, the last week, you don't want right. to touch it. The brief. Mocking the draft. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but like the whole month before, like, okay, who's in charge of what? And when are we going to be sending um, a draft brief to the client? And of course, we circulate those dates to the client as well with Sorry. our internal deadlines. So we have to abide by them. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, the best defense is a good offense. So um, making everyone clear on the deadlines and you and you do have to work backwards, um, especially if you're working with a funder, for example, who wants to mm -hmm. review a draft or any other co-counsel or you know the client. You have to give everyone at least a few days to review the final version of the draft and submit some material comments if they have any. So you kind of have to work back. OK, the client has final approval, so they'll get the final three or four days. And then before that, you will have, you know, internal circulations to the partners mm -hmm. before that to your senior associates. And then you realize that you should have already been done a month before the actual filing date, which doesn't always happen. So you're dealing with like 10 drafts coming in with track changes that yes. usually the senior associate has to go through and implement all those changes and harmonize all of them, often contradictory changes. Yeah. And the one thing that I often get as a question is like, why are you always rushing towards finalizing yes. your brief? Like what's going on? Did you, you knew the deadline from so long ago, right? I mean, especially when you're in the middle, if it's a first like um, session, 
set of, of memorials that are being exchanged, that's one thing. But if you're at the second set, you know, you know pretty much the arguments that have been advanced and mm-hmm. you, you probably have a good idea of what you're going to say beforehand. So why is it taking so long? Why are we always asking for the extra hour or the extra two days I to know. file? So, so what happens, Byron? Explain to us what happens. Well, I'll, I'll tell you is that, you know, because these documents are so large, they're often subdivided and delegated. And then to put those together into one tone, one language, one strategy, one structure, one format of the document that always messes it up. So I think it's key to get your, the formatting of your document used by all parties involved at an early stage so that they can be harmonized quite easily. Um, it's important to raise up in the hierarchy parts of the draft as soon as possible so that they can come down into into a full draft as soon as possible. And then again, you have people that haven't seen the whole complete picture. So you're getting strategies that may not work or um, arguments that often contradict each other. If you're taking a strong like, um, well, you know, this is not an investment because of X, Y, and Z. Well, do we have that argument consistently throughout our other arguments? And I think that's where the delay really comes. But also, you know, I, in, in Sweden at Manhammer, they taught us to, to write it right the first time. So mm. if you're footnoting, footnote completely, yeah. put the full footnote in there because that takes forever. Yeah, um, yeah. Finding paragraph numbers and and citation, and cita- making all citations the same and coherent. And um, so that always is something that comes up at the last minute that always requires you in the, the last three hours being like, we don't have time to, to fix all these footnotes. Cross references. Oh my gosh, this is the worst. the worst. Yeah. The worst. And you see Supra, see Emfra, where, where? The section, and then it's like, then you update all, do, all the whole document, and it's error, 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 because like the you know the the sections have moved. That's and like nightmare. Yes, it is yeah. a nightmare, and yeah. you know, and then you then you start getting into like lazy drafting techniques where yes. you're just like see section A above that references like 18 different subsections because yes. you can't be, you know, asked to- Or just see above. <laughs> or just see above. As mentioned above. As mentioned above, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is com- extremely unhelpful for a tribunal. Having been a secretary to a tribunal, um, it's it's just, it, it would drive me crazy. No, unless that. unless it's hyperlinked, which is a whole nother yeah. thing that you yes. have to consider, which is which goes down to the PO of, of arbitrators. And I really get- it's as an arbitrator and as a secretary of a tribunal, you love a hyperlinked document because mm-hmm. it does allow you to switch back and forth. Yeah. And if you want it hyperlinked to the, to the underlying documentation, um, which they have, um, God, I haven't used it in so long. What's the platform called um, that everyone's using now to do filings? E- oh, web. Web, oh, I don't home? even remember. I just used it. I forgot to say. But you basically put all your documents yes. in and all like spaces for your references yeah. and it like expedites the whole thing. But without yeah. that, you will then have to hyperlink um, your table of contents, um, your your, in, your links between sections. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really difficult. I've had to manually hyperlink a table of contents and it takes forever, um, especially since these large submissions and ISDS cases that are 300 pages and your table of contents is five pages. Oh gosh. Um, the margin go of that. error is so big too, right? I yeah. mean, you're, you're, especially when you're doing that, that's why in an ideal world, I would like this to happen the last week 
starting、mm-hmm. from Monday if you're filing、mm-hmm. on Friday, because otherwise, if you do it the last day or the last hour of your last day, then you're so stressed out, you're so tired, and、yes. you 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 know you're so and everyone's like, when is it going to happen? When is it going to be done? Because people assume the people who would draft you know the 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 course submission and then. You know, it's not. It's a division of tasks, like you mentioned.、Yeah. The people who do the hyperlinks are not the same people <laughs> in no, the team. No, exactly.、Um, and and then when you when you are done drafting, you always and may I call on that one? I've done this recently to my team. But you're just kind of like, okay, so why why are we not? You know, why is it not ready? Why is it? I、right. you know I give it to you.、For? Yeah, exactly. And they're like,、uh, <laughs> we've got like a million footnotes there. You got、right. to do all the cross references. Like, what are you talking about? It takes forever. Um, and so, yeah, you have to. And the margin of error, as you're saying, yeah, is, is so high. Super, so and then, high. if you're expected to put in a draft, and the worst thing you can do is have a submission that's filed, and then you go to the hearing and you start referencing things and realize your references are wrong, it causes like huge delays. <laughs> Page fifty six.、Uh, it does not, not、really. exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it does. It does require managing up and down. So it usually falls on the senior associate or the most senior person、um, who's doing the core drafting to manage up and down, meaning locking the draft as soon as possible, as you say, because、yeah. you know locking the text allows you to then work through the nitty gritty、um, without having to do like huge substantive changes later on.、Um, now I have two other、uh, things that I want to talk about. One is the hard copy filing. Um, which usually is given such a tight deadline because、mm-hmm. you file, you're so excited, you haven't slept in seven days, <laughs> and then you wake up and realize, oh my god, now we have to organize eighteen boxes of、yeah. documents that、yeah. are, you know, hard copies sent to everyone. Some people want legal exhibits. Some people don't want legal exhibits. Some Someone people... want A five. Somebody wants A three. Somebody、yes. wants A four.、Uh, you're like、Arr! single sided, <laughs> double sided, and so this usually comes in PO one, and so it's important to get all these factors、um, not only set out clearly in PO one, but I think it's up to the parties to really start. And you know, this goes to our you know green、um, initiative、mm-hmm. on hard copy filings that we、of、discussed、course. a few episodes ago. Is to say, well, do you actually need this? Do you need The 500-page、mm-hmm. uh, Excel document that the、um, financial experts or damages experts、mm-hmm. have relied upon in hard copy,、um, and so I think you know there's certain rules that you can put in place as counsel ahead of time that any any document over 100 pages doesn't doesn't need to be produced in hard copy,、mm-hmm. um, st- stuff like that.、Um, but I think that is all again delegated down to someone who has never even submitted something themselves, and so they're just Following the PL one and trying to make sense of it. In one, fair, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. In one of our cases, we put together, you know, a five-page instruction document on who needs what, and it has to be like completely clear. And that was the only time where it and where it was, you know, produced seamlessly.、Um, and so you can't just send someone PL one and be like, "Can you arrange hard copies for this entire submission?" <laughs> that's、work. that's a great idea. I think、um, just just on that point, I think you have to sit down at some point, take some time, even if it's just thirty minutes, with your secretary and your legal assistants and、mm-hmm. paralegals to tell them what you, you how you want it to be filed before the rush, before the、yes. adrenaline, before the stress, before you start. Yelling at everyone and start crying. Do it before. <laughs> so when you're <laughs> when you're when 
you're when you're in a good mood, you need to speak to them because they're there to help. But if you don't give them good instructions, well, it's on you, honestly. If they Absolutely. Mess up. Yeah. Instructions, instructions, instructions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about before we sign off is, do you have any, and I can start this to give you time to think about it, um, tips and tricks on finalizing a electronic form of your submission? Um, in all letters or written submissions, I do the, I always do um, control F for double spaces, unless you're in the United States, then it's all, you know, because they do two spaces after a period and then yeah, it never yeah, works. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we do all um, citations that are not filled in the pound sign. What's the technical term for that? Um, in the hash. Tag, Hash, hashtag yeah <laughs> I, I would say hashtag um, because yeah. it's the only symbol that i have found that is not used in any other context in a mm. document so you can control f very that. good tip um because brackets sometimes that doesn't work because yeah. you'll have that in a citation where you've admitted part of it so um the hash sign is something that we use or the xxx like i do sometimes xxx because that's never <laughs> definitely to have done that um and then i do so double space uh, double period, double comma, space period, space comma, mm -hmm. and then go through and see um, any titles that are have ended up at the bottom of the page. Those are like my go-to before anything goes out. This is, these are really good tips. These are really good tips, but I would say these are tips to make your brief look perfect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, at the last minute, of course, I want somebody to do that and to make it look perfect. And we are paid, you know, to make it look really good and, and presentation does matter and so on and so forth. Yes. But I would also do something to make sure we didn't do something even worse, which is like, um, you know, for example, <clears throat> it sounds trivial but i think it's not is your titles in the mm -hmm. table of contents uh, because as you mentioned earlier you need to harmonize your arguments on the substance mm -hmm. but i think it's equally important to harmonize this format uh, not just the format but the the tone you know what how you're you're writing your titles makes make an argument you know right. and and when you draft with multiple hands, multiple brains, it is obvious that, you know, how you frame your argument is going to be different. Right. That's okay, but it's not, I think it appears, it's really clear from the table of contents if it's not drafted the same way. Right. So the are last- they argumentative? Are they- Yeah, sentences? exactly, exactly. So I, I tend to take some time and go through the table of contents as a team together to make it look uh, good uh, yes. before we get into, you know, doing all of that. So that's one- one thing that I that I too look at, but you're right. The what they what are they call like orphans, right? Orphans when you have. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, In Swedish, it's called like hanging hanging titles. Titles, yes, yeah. exactly. So if you have a view, you have a view mode where you can see two or four pages in a in a right. In, in on your screen in one go. That's actually helpful to view the the titles. You can Definitely. view quickly. Uh, if they if they look like bizarre, because that's just the appearance to the eye, which unfortunately. But, is... but it's important. It's of course yeah. it's important. Or if you have a missing exhibit or something. Also, yes, that's something we should have probably said before. But from like you mentioned, as you're doing your footnotes, also make sure you have the documents. Yes. <laughs> you actually have them. <laughs> some lazy drafting sometimes you can be referring to a reference that makes a reference to a reference if you know what i mean yeah um and the end document you might not actually have and so that creates difficulty so from the early stages if you could 
talk to your team and make sure you have a folder with all the references and stuff that you're referring to that makes everyone's life so much easier. Yes, yeah. definitely. And that, that unfortunately, there are programs that are programs that, avail- uh, that are available to check that. And mm-hmm. they allow you to have draft folders with all the documents that you yeah. have in there. And um, so this has been automized. And I think it's, um, it's really expensive. But I think firms, especially bigger firms, um, should really invest in it because yeah. it, it cuts down significantly on the, the amount of time and the you know, margin of error, mm-hmm. as you say. Yeah. And I, I just one last point yes. before is that I think you should make sure you get plenty of rest, even if it sounds impossible. I think it's you can't your brain cannot function if you don't sleep seven days in a row. <laughs> no, no. So, and it is easier said than done. But you, yeah. at, at the very least, walk away from your document. Yeah. For, you know, a night and kind yeah. of a, go at it with fresh eyes because there's nothing better than um, a pair of fresh eyes looking exactly. at Exactly. Exactly. So make sure you drink plenty of fluids. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And vitamin C. Oh, we didn't even talk about the health things that I do before. I, you know, I'm constantly drinking vitamin C. Yes. Uh, you know, because you cannot. Yes. Get, yes. You cannot get sick in the filing. And I know a lot of people who get sick right after filings because. Yes, yes, absolutely. That exactly. It happens to to all of us. Like your body starts to kind of, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it weird? You like, Mm. I I think a lot of people got sick right when we went into lockdown, not because of COVID, but because the stress Mm -hmm. pressure had actually lifted for a bit. And then, mm-hmm. and then people's bodies caught up with the adrenaline that was blocking mm-hmm. their, <laughs> their immune systems. It's so sad. Is that it our, is really our bodies sad. like block? They, they're like, no, I can't get sick. I can't get sick. I can't get sick. Mental, just, isn't it? Yeah, it is mental. But here well, it is. Yeah. Here we are. Tips. We can't avoid it. Exactly. Like when, if you've done, if you haven't done a filing yet, uh, it's like you you haven't been baptized yet or something, you know? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> In and the world of arbitration. Ahead. Plan ahead, plan ahead. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Sadia. Another thank you, Brian. Another wonderful episode. And we expect Joel back the next episode then. Yeah, with Intel on the Institute Working Group. There we go. All right, until then, follow us at The Arb Station on Twitter or email us at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com. Still open for segments um, for anyone who has suggestions uh, for the remainder of the season. Other than that, we'll see you next time. Bye.